Good morning, everybody. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we left off in our series through Colossians, Jesus, first place in everything. Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6, and we will read through verse 15. We're going to sit on verses 6 through 10 for this morning. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, an empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As we settle in verses 6 through 10 this morning, talking about the danger of empty philosophy. The danger of empty philosophy. Jesus must be the one who controls our philosophy of life. Believe it or not, you have a philosophy of life. A philosophy of life is very simply what causes you, on what principles do you face every moment of every day of your life. That's your philosophy of life. Philosophers were important in the ancient world. They were looked upon to ask and answer big questions. What does it mean to be human? Why do we exist? Where did we come from? Who is God? How should, we, how should our relationships be built? What place do our emotions have in life? And all these big questions. And the conclusions of a philosopher would be what guided a society's day-to-day life. So as you interacted with your spouse, as you went to the grocery store, uh, as you went out to the field to work, that, those answers to those questions were important as a society looked to philosophers to, to figure out how they were supposed to live in day-to-day life. The word philosophy means, philo is love, sophia is wisdom, a love of wisdom. And so that's what philosophers did. They took the big questions... And they showed you how answers to the big questions affected every single aspect of your life on the ground level. Now today, uh, in in our modern America, philosophers don't carry near the same importance. And largely, philosophers today are unhelpful. Modern philosophy asks big questions, 
Sometimes they ask totally irrelevant big questions, but they provide no real answers for day-to-day life. Now, back in ancient times, and really until modern philosophy, philosophers weren't really concerned whether or not a chair exists when you leave the room. It's not what they were focusing their attention on. They were trying to help people see the ultimate good and how that ultimate good, whatever it was they believed was the ultimate good, affected their everyday life. Now get this. According to the verses we've just read and what we've studied so far in the book of Colossians, because uh, even back in, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, if you remember, we talked about uh, this, who Jesus is, and we talked about him being the most wonderful person you could know, and we gave the reasons why. Because Jesus is the manifestation of the one true God, because Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, because Jesus is exalted above all things, that means that his way of life alone is complete and true and sufficient. And any other philosophy of life Anything else any other philosopher or teacher may say means it's only a fraction. It's incomplete. And some are just flat out wrong. All other views of emotions and relationships and conduct and happiness are partial, incomplete, insufficient compared to Christ, who is the whole of the Christian life. I bring this up. Many Christians today live with Jesus as part of their lives. It's like your dresser at home. You got different, different, what are they called? Compartments? Uh, different drawers, that's what they're called. Uh, different drawers for different things. Uh, you've got your shirts here, you've got your socks here, you've got something else here, and you've, you've just all these different drawers. And, and for a lot of Christians, that's the way Jesus is. I've got my job up here, I've got my marriage right here. Got my parenting right here, and then Jesus is another, another drawer I open when it's time to go to church or maybe time even to do my daily Bible reading. And for a lot of Christians, when it comes to relationships and finances, vocation, sexuality, identity, emotions, and ultimate happiness, they have little idea of, how, of what part Jesus plays. And the reason is, is because as I just said, he's not a part, but for the Christian, he is the whole He is to be your whole life Christian philosophy. Jesus is our greatest philosopher, explaining us how to answer to the big questions, the big questions of purpose and identity and existence in God and how those answers shape every second of our day. Jonathan Pennington, in a book he wrote called Jesus the Great Philosopher, identifies the problem with modern Christianity and he says modern Christianity has often been taught has often been practiced and taught in ways that divorce it from the rest of quote unquote real life the result is many churched children become adult nuns these people are among the 23% of the american population who today answer none to the question what is your religious affiliation but why is it Why would somebody eventually grow up and leave Christianity? Because they never saw it and they were never taught that Jesus is not to be divorced from the rest of life. He's not to be divorced from your friends, from your marriage. He's not to be divorced from your job or from your parenting. 
He's not to be divorced from your finances, your anxiety, your depression, your hurts, your struggles, your failures. You must be careful of what a mentor of mine would call the Uzzah syndrome. And he would say his concern for children who grew up in the church is not that they would get too close to God, but that they would get too comfy with him. Just like Uzzah did when he went to study the ark of God. And this such a holy item became just another box. Kids who have been raised in the church get too comfy with God and he becomes a part of their lives. But they don't know how he relates to every aspect of life. They don't know how he relates to their friends, to their identity, to their sexuality, to their emotions, to their ultimate happiness. He isn't their whole life because they weren't taught that he's your whole life. This morning what I want to do, we're going to interpret this passage, but first I want to interpret to you what's going on in the culture today and two philosophies that have influenced not only the culture, but I believe the church and I believe many of you and it could be even found in me as well. There are two basic forms of philosophy dominating our culture today. The first one is, maybe you've heard it before, but it's intersectionality. This is what I would call the philosophy of oppression. Intersectionality. Now, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the term, it's, it's basically what you see on college campuses today. But what it originally meant, originally it was, it was an insight into society. So Kimberly Crenshaw, she's the one who in 1989, she coined this phrase, intersectionality, when she wrote a paper for the University of Chicago Legal Forum titled, Demarginalize the Intersection of Race and Sex. Um, a, race, a recent article on Vox.com summarizes her thoughts where the idea of intersectionality was the law, and I quote, the law seemed to forget that black women are both black and female and thus subject to discrimination on the basis of both race, gender, and often a combination of the two, end quote. So the idea behind intersectionality was it was, it was intended to give insight on how black women are still prone to increased discrimination because they are both black and they are women, even though there have been uh, progress, there has been legislation of women's rights and blacks, black rights. That was the original intention of intersectionality. Now how it's used today, in today's culture, is it has become an ideology. So it's no longer an insight on what it means to be a black woman in America, it has become an ideology where a lot of different groups have taken this idea of, a, of, of, uh, of victimhood and just completely run away with it. So what was originally meant to be an idea and provide insight has turned into a full-on ideology that we find in America today. It's being used to build division, to create separation between oppressors and groups that are deemed to be victims. Now, I want you to notice what Kimberly Crenshaw, again, who, who, who first came up with this insight, notice what she says as she looks at how her ideas and insights are being used today. She says, and I quote, this is what happens when an idea travels beyond context and content, end quote. Again, we see this especially on college campuses where there's a war on who should be on top of the oppression ladder. There's a war on who, what group is victimized the most. In 1992, 
at the National Women's Studies Association in Austin, Texas. They actually attempted to divide women up into uh, what they called their healing group, or those groups in which they needed healing based on different oppressions, things like that. And so they divided these women up based on sexual identity, race, even body type. And what they found was as they got into these groups, even, uh, even uh, among the, the white women group, they, they found that there was more divisions. That even within that group, uh, or the Asian group, they found that people kept finding more ways that they were oppressed. And so they were even dividing up into those groups. And so what happened is they kept dividing and dividing and dividing into these oppression groups till eventually, and I quote from someone who was there, Women with allergies formed a caucus and issued a set of demands about not wearing dry, clean clothing or hairspray. That's where it got to. Why does all this matter to us? Because we can see it in ourselves. You ever been upset about not getting your way? Have you ever gotten a little bit cranky over the slightest difference between you and someone else? As Christians, we need to look at this, and first off, we do need to, we do need to recognize that there are injustices that exist because of non-essential differences, such as skin color and gender. There are those that suffer greater harm because their lives intersect at different places based on their race, their gender, or other social economic backgrounds. But also, for the Bible-saturated Christian, he or she should understand that these sorts of injustices and oppressions are the expected result of sin-saturated people. Pride and fear grip our hearts, and they turn us cold to anything that doesn't line up with what we're familiar with, what we're comfortable with, or what we concur with. Which is why I say this is just as, mar- just as much as your heart and my heart as it is this philosophy. And you may not be making a caucus on, you know, and demanding that people not wear hairspray. But nonetheless, whenever we're confronted with something we're not familiar with, something we're not comfortable with, something we don't concur with, even within the church, what do we do? Fear grips us. We put up those walls. Pride gets into us, and we start listing our demands on how things ought to go. Just take away the term intersectionality and boil it down to the heart, and we can see the same pride, fear, entitlement, and bitterness within ourselves. We mentioned what started as a helpful insight into our culture exploded into a frenzy of people trying to find ways that they're a victim and what sort of power and privilege they deserve because of however they identify themselves as being a victim, based on whatever they come up with. But don't think that mindset hasn't entered the church, and don't think that same mindset can't be within you or within me. As we fight for our own entitlement, as pride and fear and bitterness explode in our own hearts, we realize we don't get what we want, we, we play the victim And even James would say this, doesn't he, in James chapter 4? James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you, church? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
Notice this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You don't get what you want. People aren't bound down to your wishes, so you murder. And then he goes on to say, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, you want, you want, you want, and you're not getting it. And so we fight. We fight. We fight in our marriages. We fight our kids. We fight people in the church because we want, we want, we want, and we're not getting it. So as you can take away this term, but this philosophy of oppression can very easily sneak its way into our own lives. There's a second philosophy going on in today's world, and this is what I would call evangelical deviation. So if intersectionality is really far left, really outside the church, really non-Christian, I would say evangelical deviation may be even more prone to something we fall into. And this is what I call the philosophy of affirmation. So instead of living your life based on how am I a victim, how am I oppressed, how can I set my demands, get what I want, fighting, quarreling, all these things, evangelical deviation is the philosophy of affirmation. If oppression says, I'm oppressed, I'm a victim, and therefore I should be exalted above you, the philosophy of affirmation says, I'm great, and therefore I should be exalted, and everything I do should be affirmed. Both are rooted in pride, both misunderstand the nature of mankind, both exalt man over Christ. Now, how does this play out in our culture today? I think it plays out in two specific ways. One is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. This is a form of religious teaching that, that, that states that God's ultimate intention for you and for me is to be happy and healthy. Health, wealth, and prosperity, that's God's promise to you if you would follow him. But the, the shortcoming here is that, man, this promises far too little. A rich uncle can promise me just as much as God can if his promise to me is health, wealth, and prosperity. Like, I just got to pray that I've got some rich uncle somewhere down there who's going to leave me a great inheritance or whatever, you know? I mean, who is God in that? How little of a God can only promise temporary things. God has far grander things for us than temporary health and wealth. He's promised that we could be rich in Christ. We could have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Why would I want God to be a rich uncle to me? But secondly, not only the prosperity gospel, but what I would call the minimized gospel. The minimized gospel. So maybe you'll say, well, I'm not really on that train of believing that God just wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Maybe you're not being take, taken captive by that philosophy. What about the minimized gospel that highlights God's nearness apart from his godness? It's a gospel that runs quickly to God's love and his provision and his mercy without ever stopping to think about his transcendence, his greatness, his holiness, his otherness. So in this sort of minimized gospel or philosophy, any mention of sin, any mention for the need of repentance or calls to holiness are replaced with phrases like, you're enough, or don't get down on yourself. God created you that way, so celebrate who you are. You just need to get rid of all the negativity out of your life. It's wrapped in Christian lingo, but the goal is for you to feel good about you, apart from Christ. You might use God, it might use Christ, 
But the ultimate goal is I want you to walk away from this Facebook post feeling really good about who you are. It's ultimately, it's a philosophy of life that says whatever thought, whatever attitude, whatever I say, whatever action I do is already approved by God. And if it does go against God, I mean, he understands. He just wants me, he just wants me to embrace my shortcomings. He doesn't ask me to repent or to call it sin. This is all over the church. And it can be in our hearts. This sort of philosophy is on display just about anywhere you can find Christians. Because again, we all have sinful hearts that rather not face the facts. We want to think, think highly of ourselves. We want to think, we think ourselves as, as wholly acceptable before God just the way we are. The Bible becomes irrelevant. We're told to look for God in music, in people, or in creation anywhere except the Bible. Uh, this, is, this is an Oprah Winfrey mindset. And I, I, I already had this sermon typed up, and, and uh, just, just last night we were, we were uh, watch, watching an episode of her show uh, called Super Soul. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's really no benefit to you. You're not really missing out on anything much. Uh, but she was interviewing a well-known house fixer who said that even though he grew up in a conservative Christian home, he never really liked reading the Bible. And he never found God in the Bible. He said, but, but when I went out to my grandpa's ranch and I did, you know, and I wrestled, a, wrestled some cattle, or I saw a cow, cow giving birth, I did out and do those ranch things. He says, then, then I experienced God. That's the mindset. You know, go experience God through some song or some emotional encounter. Go experience God in creation. And not that creation can't point us to God. Of course it does. But look for God anywhere else except for the Bible. The Bible becomes irrelevant. God's authority becomes intrusive. God even submits to humans. And this plays well in a culture that wants to live free from any authority. God becomes my cheerleader. He becomes my genie. He becomes my Disneyland vacation. You know, where everything, everything comes true with God. And all my wants and all my desires are supreme. And, 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 and everyone else's job in my life is to affirm what I'm doing. They're to affirm what I do, affirm what I want, affirm how I think, affirm how I feel. And to assert that Jesus may not agree with any of those things in my life, that he may not agree with my personal preferences, that he may not agree with my shortcomings, that he may not agree with my failings or my desires, is to give great offense. The Bible is irrelevant, God's authority becomes intrusive, and sin is ultimately insignificant. No big deal. Craig Troxell, when he wrote a book, he says, we must rid ourselves of any idea that falling short is an excuse for not being perfect. Yes, we sin. And yes, God's grace and mercy is available to be poured out on us through Jesus Christ. Glory to God. But we must not neglect calls for biblical confession and repentance. We must not mistake God as anything less than holy. 
Those are the two philosophies prevalent in our world, world today and can be prevalent in the church and in your heart and mine. And we must be on guard that our lives are not ruled, because in both of them, it's kind of the same idea. It's pride. It's me getting what I want. It's me being labeled how I want to be labeled, you affirming. We must be careful that we do not adopt any other sort of philosophy of life, that our lives are not ruled by anything but Jesus Christ, which brings us to our text this morning. Because there's a third philosophy that should rule, and that's the true gospel, the philosophy of Jesus Christ. All philosophies of life seek to find the principles that will help us live well. And so, for some, living well means having some experience out in creation with God. For some, living well means trying to find a way in which I'm not getting my way or I'm a victim in some way, and then setting my list of demands for others to fulfill. Some people have a philosophy of life where they think the way they live well is to just ignore all the sin, ignore scriptures, and just demand that people affirm them and pat them on the back when they sin. Any philosophy of life that does not have Jesus at its center will ultimately be unfulfilling. It'll be confusing, it'll be frustrating, it'll be lacking in many, if not in every single way. As we look at this passage, I want to look at three dangers to empty philosophies. Three dangers to even the philosophies we just looked at. Number one, it will hurt your walk. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It will hurt your walk. Now, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 is really the, really the summary of the whole letter. They have received Christ Jesus as their Lord. Now there's to walk in him, to be rooted and built up in him. Their daily lives were to be lived in Christ. Their daily lives were to, live, to be lived according to Christ. Their conduct was to be appropriate for one who confesses Christ as their Savior. Jesus was to establish their values, their thinking, their conduct. And the same goes for you and me. Jesus is the one who should establish our values, our thinking, our attitudes, our desires, our conduct. If you're a Christian, Jesus isn't just a part of your life. He is your life. And we have everything we need in him. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What it says here. His divine power has granted to us all things. All things, what does that mean? Well, the things that pertain to what? Life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Look at those words. To life and godliness. All things granted to us through God, from God through Christ for us. This is Peter saying, Jesus should be your whole life philosophy. Everything we need for everyday life is available to us in Christ and in Christ alone. And there may be some in here who just, you're a Christian, but you just don't see it. You just don't believe it. 
You come to church on Sundays, you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again, you know your sins are forgiven, you know you, you, know you have eternal life, but in the rubber meets the road, down on ground level, you just don't see how Jesus fits. He does fit. And he uses images to help us realize that. We're to be rooted like a tree. We're to, we're, we're to take our roots deep into Christ. We're to be built like a solid house, established like a legal document, abounding like an overflowing cup. That's our thanksgiving. The life philosophy of those in Jesus Christ I think should revolve around at the end of verse 7 where it says abounding in thanksgiving. I think that's where it starts. You're saying, I just don't see how Jesus fits. I don't see how Jesus fits when I'm just sitting around the house. I don't see where Jesus fits when I go to work. I don't see where Jesus fits when it comes to my finances. I don't see where Jesus fits when it comes to my marriage. Start with thankfulness. Start with thankfulness. Start with getting to know what Jesus has done for you. Read recently from a, from a well-known pastor in the, in the U.S. Uh, he said, Jesus is with you. He says, Jesus does not get tired, and he does not get tired of you. Amen for that. He doesn't get tired of you. And maybe you could say, I'm a little tired of him. I'm weary. I don't see where life connects here. Pray. Yes, pray, and ask God to bring you into a closer, intimate relationship with him. Get in the word, grow in your thankfulness, and you'll begin to see blossom in your life, everything else. It'll all fall into place. If Jesus is disconnected from your marriage, from your job, from your home, from your bank account, from your preferences, from your attitudes, then your walk is hurting. But that's not the only danger. There's another danger of these empty philosophies, they'll hurt your walk, but number two, it'll take you captive. It will take you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. The, the Greek word here, it literally means, it means just that, to be carried off as plunder, to be kidnapped. Paul is telling them, he says, the, the word uh, see to it, it's the word blepo, it means look out. Like, be watchful. Keep your eyes open. Don't, don't let it into your life. Don't let them come and carry you off. Don't let these empty, hollow, deceptive illusions take you captive. He calls them vain philosophy, just this, this empty of any real spiritual value. There's emptiness there. There's no real spiritual value other than in Christ and in his word. Jesus took great issue with those who turn things that are true and transformational and pass them down on a purely human level, which is why Paul says here that these uh, philosophies that are empty and hollow and vain, he says they're according, in verse 8, according to human tradition. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 is what you want to mark down for this. We won't take the time to turn there, but we will touch on a verse here in a minute. But, But it's this idea that religion uh, religion, human, religious human traditions are speculations about how God wants us to live and they're passed down from generation to generation but eventually, or maybe even originally, they're disconnected from Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You have these, and that's what the Pharisees did. They had these, re- these religious human traditions 
where they speculated how life should look if you're a follower of God, and they kept passing them down and passing them down and passing them down. And the next generation would stack more traditions on the next and next and next and next. And the next generation, always disconnected from Christ and always disconnected from what God really wanted, eventually you have this vain human tradition. And eventually what sprouts out of this is error and ignorance. As one generation keeps stacking on more human understanding on the previous generation's human understanding. And here's what it says in Mark chapter 7 verse 8. Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Paul is warning you and he's warning me about holding to any form of philosophy that is grounded in tradition and is not grounded in Christ. Are you held captive? Paul would go on to describe this philosophy as not only according to human tradition, but according to elementary principles. Like It looks sophisticated on the outside. It looks good. But in reality, it's elementary. It's childish. The, 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 the idea of the word is to like set your ABCs in order. To count one, two, three, ABC. I mean, it's just the most, the, rudiment, the most elementary thing you could ever do. And Paul is saying here, the highest human philosophy can do nothing to supplement Christ. Human philosophy can only hinder true wisdom. It will not create true wisdom. So this creative victimization that we see, this personal affirmation, they're childish. And we must go on to maturity. There's a third danger. One, it'll hurt your walk. It'll take you captive. And number three, ultimately, it will leave you empty. For in him, verse 9 and 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christians have something better. I mean, we can have the tendency to jump from guru to guru or Facebook page to Facebook page, Instagram account to Instagram account, trying to figure out how we should live our lives, how we should act towards our kids, this, that, that, this. And we can take our cues from how to organize our finances from this radio host or that radio host. We can go somewhere else for marriage, somewhere else for work, somewhere else for our emotions, somewhere else for our relationships. And there's not, this isn't to say there's, there, there are no helpful things out there. I'm not saying that. But we have the great, perfect, incomprehensible wisdom of God available to us through Jesus Christ. And if Jesus has been divorced from your day-to-day life, then you're missing out on God's greatest blessing. And that's probably why you keep jumping from guru to guru. Because they'll leave you empty. And they ultimately won't give you all the answers you're looking for. We've been filled with Christ. Apart from Christ, you are empty. Apart from Christ... You are empty. What gives our jobs meaning? What gives our marriages meaning? What gives parenting meaning? Is it not the all-sufficient Christ? Through our union with him, we participate in fullness. That's what verse 10 says. It says, in him, he's been filled with the deity. In him, all all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God. He's the God man. And it says, and you have been filled in him. Through our union with him, we we participate in his fullness. The world tells us that security is found in political power, economic success, modern social structures, whatever they may be. It's blasphemous. 
This is the whole idea. We need no one but him. All we can know experience of God is found in Christ. He's totally sufficient, completely satisfying, and ultimately fulfilling. He is the centerpiece of understanding what it means to live a godly life. We need no one but him. So I'm not asking how much you know about Jesus this morning. I'm asking about your, your, your driving down the road experience of life. Every fear, every thought, every trip to the grocery store, every encounter with your own sin, every time you're sinned against, every time life gets confusing, every time your spouse leaves you longing for something more. Has Jesus saturated your life? Is Jesus your life? Or are you looking for life and happiness and satisfaction in every other place? Have you found yourself unsatisfied and life unworkable? Do you know Christ as your Savior? The invitation from Jesus is to trust him. He died for you and rose again. Anyone who believes on him could have eternal life, have their sins forgiven, and life will begin to make sense as you are found in him and he is found in you. If your walk with Christ is hurting... If you sense you've been taken captive by worldly philosophies, if you're empty, can I invite you to do something? Come to Christ. He is sufficient to guide you every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord, saturate us with Jesus, this church, with Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to be on the watch for our own sinful tendencies and our own, our own temptations to, and our own bent towards going such worldly philosophies. We can laugh at the things we see in the culture today, but Lord, if everyone in here was honest with themselves, we see that, own, that same pride, that same entitlement, that same bitterness, that, the same fighting within our, our, within our own hearts. So Lord, I just pray, not that our minds would be full of Jesus, but our lives be filled with Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name.